I'm Jancis Robinson. Welcome to JancisRobinson.com, the podcast. This is a special episode with a crucial member of the JancisRobinson.com team, Tamlin Curran. We'll be discussing a subject that can be, depending on your point of view, daunting, absorbing, fun, or even unnecessary. Pairing wine with food. We'll offer some useful tips, debunk a few myths, and even share some of the latest discoveries in the science of taste. It is my great pleasure to introduce you to one of our JancisRobinson.com team members, a very, very important one, Tamlin Curran, who writes about all sorts of things, beautifully, I may say, and has her own very particular style, fantastically creative tasting notes. She specializes, well, she specializes in lots of things. She's the person who extremely thoroughly answers emails that people send into the site. Uh, she has a special interest in all matters sustainable and ecological and is currently doing a BSc honors degree in environmental science. She writes all our book reviews extremely thoroughly. I don't know any book reviewer who reads the books as thoroughly as she does. You've got a special interest in the longer doc, I think, Tam, so forth. I do. Um, yeah. But she is a very good cook. I think her sister's a professional cook. Yes. And she's particularly interested in wine and food pairing. Thanks so much, Tam, for joining us today. It's wonderful to be here today to talk about one of the things that I'm really obsessed about. <laughs> And I thought it'd be fun to discuss the whole question of matching food and wine, because I am pretty much a philistine um, or a pragmatist, can, uh, depending on whether you agree with me or not. And I don't, I'm afraid to say, go to great lengths on the food and wine pairing front. My own little theory is that if you're sensitive to what you taste, and once you've drunk quite a bit of wine and eaten quite a bit of food, and and had them together. I think we have a sort of little invisible computer in our heads that pretty much senses what's going to go with what. And so rather than, I don't know, looking up a guide or something like that, we kind of automatically choose a wine that's likely to go with what we're going to eat or vice versa. But Tam, I know that you are much more precise than that. So set me right. Right. I think I agree with you in that to a certain extent, um, the reality is we all have to be practical and pragmatic about this. It, you know, you have food to hand and you have wine to hand and very often we don't have a huge amount of choice to hand. However, the tradition of food and wine pairing is, is long. For me, that tells me something that it's been an interest of human beings who love flavours for a long time, as long as kind of gastronomy has been around. Um, and many great chefs have taken it very seriously. And these are people who take flavor very seriously. They spend their lives obsessing about how to construct recipes, what flavors go with what flavors. So I wouldn't argue for food and wine pairing as something that we should all do obsessively all the time. But I would argue that it has a place and it can be huge fun. And when you have a 
great combination of a dish and a wine. And I think other people might agree with me, but this is what I believe is that it is a two plus two equals five combination, that the sum becomes greater than the parts. I, I think what's interesting is that food and wine pairing was very much a traditional thing based on a few simple but quite stringent rules. Uh, we all know the cliched red wine with red meat and white wine with fish. Is that rubbish? Yes. It is, quite frankly. Uh, and in <laughs> fact, over the weekend, we, we had uh, a roast lamb with a certico. And that's one of the most sublime combinations in the world. And a certico is a white wine, as we know from Greece, with great acidity, but it's also got great power and depth. And it's absolutely beautiful with roast lamb. And it picks the two of them are one of those combinations that I think is where the sun is greater than the whole. And there are also fish that go very well with red wine. Again, it possibly depends on the sauce. If you are cooking your fish in a in a richer sauce or a tomato-based sauce with the right red wine, it can be better than with a white wine. Where do you think it came from, that, that white wine with fish rule and red wine with meat? Possibly fish tends to be more delicate, fresher. And and if we go back to the way that recipes are constructed and, and the way that we eat and the way that we cook, flavor combinations and texture combinations are very much tried and tested, traditional ones anyway. And if you think white fish is often served with lemon or a citrus sauce and white wines have that citrus, fresh, lemony kind of element. So if you extrapolate out of that, red meat goes beautifully with mushrooms and deep sauces. And very often the sauces for red meats were based on wine. So it kind of makes it obvious or more instinctive maybe to go with a, a wine that has possibly mushroom flavors and has the depth and the darkness of the sauce. I also think that we we eat and taste with our eyes. So white fish, white wine, red meat, red wine. <laughs> I think there's a great element. We are very, we can try and get away with that, but we are very guided by our eyes. <laughs> That's, they did that experiment, didn't they, when they gave people wines to describe and people always go for red fruits when they're describing red wines. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. We blow in the wind, basically. But I suppose yeah. in, in real life, as opposed to sort of high gastronomy, we often don't have a choice, do we? we so, so often people just have one bottle to hand or two at the most and, exactly. and, and aren't even choosing what they're going to eat. Somebody else, you know, it's so often in, say, a couple, one's responsible for wine and one's responsible for food. And they don't necessarily sit at breakfast and say, mm, darling, what should we have this evening? <laughs> you don't live in our house. <laughs> <laughs> well, I congratulate you. I think that's brilliant if you're that well prepared. <laughs> uh, for me, there is really, well, only two circumstances in which I would expect to have the perfect match of wine and food. And one of them would obviously be coming to your house for dinner. <laughs> and the other would be being in a sort of Michelin three-star restaurant, a really fancy restaurant, one of those French ones where the menu doesn't change much. And the sommelier has access to a seller that he knows 
intimately. And he's because the rest of the menu doesn't change often, the Somme has tasted all the dishes. And so if you're in that circumstance as a guest, I think you are justified in asking the Somme to recommend a wine at, say, three different price points that will be perfect with yeah. that dish. I think that. But a lot of it is is just kind of trial and error, isn't it? There's another time when you'll find the perfect wine with the perfect food. And I, it's a cliche, but it's true. And this is when you go to a wine region with a strong cuisine, a strong heritage of cuisine and a strong heritage of wine. And you sit down at a simple restaurant, trattoria, brasserie, whatever it is, something simple, or go to an Italian family for lunch. <laughs> and the food in front of you will just be magical with the wine that they give you. Very often you're not given a choice. It's a caress or something. And I I don't know the explanation of it, but it, it so often seems to be that wine styles evolve in a region alongside of the cuisine of the region. You know, we could be talking about Barolo and, and white truffles right at that end, or simply a slice of pizza in Naples with, you know, a slosh of whatever local red wine they've got. And often there's a perfection in that, which may or may not be related to ambience, to the moment, to the emotion. Or, for instance, goat's cheese and Sancerre or something like exactly. that. Exactly. Not yeah. expensive, not particularly expensive. Yeah. Or Rioja and, and lamb done over... Um, open fire or something. Yes. Yeah. And even perhaps not as with not as long a tradition, but Argentinian Melbeck, you know, with a gaucho grill. Asado, you know, yeah. Asado, yeah. Or uh, let me throw in another here, um, Beaujolais and, and Saucisse Lyonnaise, you know, the sort of yeah. local. And, and Victoria Moore, whose wine dine dictionary is one of the most well, some books in our household <laughs> next to the upset companion to wine. <laughs> uh, and, you know, you I guess you think for someone who loves wine and food pairing that I wouldn't need books, but I love to see what people who are really good, like Fiona Beckett, the food and wine matching and Victoria Moore with her wine dine dictionary. And both of them, but Victoria Moore particularly, gives one of her, not a rule, but a guideline that... If you want to not overthink it, to match uh, regional cuisine with regional wine is one of the easiest ways of just getting it right without much effort. Sherry with a nice dry, or actually almost any sherry with ham on, lovely, lovely yes. ham, olives, all those um, or almonds. Marcona yes. almonds, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that's the other interesting thing is how wine and food pairing has started to move, I think, led by people like Ferran Adria and Heston Blumenthal and chefs, chefs. Who, chefs who became obsessed with the chemistry of food and not necessarily molecular cooking, although that's how they both started off, but, but really trying to understand what is the chemistry of flavor. And along with that, much as I don't like to say this, we have to credit the a fast food industry and the war machine. So processed food became very important during World War II. How do we provide soldiers with food that doesn't go off, um, that can be packed easily, carried easily, 
but that tastes good. So the food science of food, the chemistry of food started to become quite serious because of war. And then, you know, in the 50s, 60s and 70s, um, trying to feed people cheaply, processed food became even more important. And with that, how before you would grow your tomatoes in your garden and they would taste great. Uh, now we're talking about having to take, make commercially grown tomatoes and greenhouses taste great. So we've got to add things to them. So yes, food chemistry. With that then grew this chef movement of trying to understand the chemistry of flavor and how these things changed, how different chemical components changed other chemical components in your mouth, how we smelt. And alongside of that, the science of food and wine pairing has started to develop. Still, it's a very geeky, quite a small thing, but what has been quite interesting is that it has backed up some of the traditional way of thinking. The science has kind of gone, okay. Explained the combinations yes. that worked. Yeah. Yes. Um, but it's also opened up new things that we can try and pairing, daring pairings. I even have a book on my shelf called Daring Pairings. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's Evan Goldstein, isn't it? Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you've got the work of the, sadly, late, he died in 2021, but the amazing neuroscientist Gordon Shepherd, Dr. Gordon Shepherd, who uh, professed at Harvard University. And he studied the neurology of tasting uh, for 30 years. And he wrote two books called Neurogastronomy, was his first one, and Neuroenology trying to understand how we taste. And what's really interesting about his research is that the combination of different flavor molecules from different foods in our mouth change. Some of them have a canceling effect. Some of them have a synthetic effect. So between the two of them, they will change each other. And some of them together will, will enhance one flavor over others. So this chemistry... The molecules in our mouths, the aromatic flavor molecules, um, the chemical reactions going on in our mouths, our noses, and even in our throats, we smell down the back of our throat, we have smell receptors. So this is moving food and wine pairing on to a really geeky level. Can you, can you pull out one or two simple rules for us or guidance for us to follow? Um. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. What about that thing when um, hot chili, you, you're tasting something really hot, doesn't that do something to your receptors? That's a particularly interesting thing. The impact of chili on in our mouths is actually, we feel like it's burning, but what it's doing is it's activating uh, pain receptors and kind of teasing them. It's not just chili. Chili and garlic um, stimulate heat and pain receptors. So they're kind of tricking our mouths into feeling heat and pain. There is no heat and there is no pain, but they stimulate those receptors. And when those receptors are activated, the wine that we drink, particularly with chili, feels colder because it's the, suddenly there's a contrast. And because they are these receptors are heightened, it actually heightens tannins as well because now the receptors have become overactive as it were. So now they're very sensitive. So any, any tannins, which is why often the advice is with chili, don't drink a big tannic red wine. 
chill if you can have a light red wine chill it a little bit because it cools the chili it balances out that sense of heat so a fruity red would be a lot better than a a, a tough young chewy one absolutely and because your your mouth is as it were distracted by the pain the receptors in your mouth that are, and and your aromatic receptors don't concentrate so much on the rest of the wine they literally it's like making a big noise and then you can't hear this is what all your flavor receptors are doing so things like fruit and nuances and and complexity of the wine we don't pick up now our whole mouth and brain are working on texture and and basic things which is why and i will possibly be shot down for this but often a slightly sweet rosé is one of the best things to have with a very hot chili and i don't know what it's like in the rest of the world up here in north bucks we've got lots of indian curry houses with fantastic chili but terrible wine lists really terrible <laughs> but inevitably on these wine lists is a matius rosé mm. and it's actually one of the best wines to have with a really hot chili well we're going out for a, a sri lankan <laughs> meal tonight at a restaurant so i'm going to put you to the test try a nice Fruity rosé. <laughs> fruity rosé. A cold, fruity rosé, even one with a little bit of a, a sparkle is quite good. So carbon dioxide bubbles, so a little bit of a fizz in a wine also distracts those pain receptors. Garlic has a similar effect, which is why sometimes something very garlicky can feel like it's burning in your mouth. Slightly more gentle because, and we don't often eat raw garlic, but if you have raw garlic, what you want is a rosé. And I guess that's why so often, if you think about aioli, um, mm. you know, the garlic mayonnaise, what is the, the go-to wine? Aioli doesn't go very well with many other wines. And it's horrible with water. Yes. No, but, yes. But with a rosé with lots of gumption and fruit in it, it's wonderful. Isn't that funny? You see, I've been writing and saying for years that I recommend a, a rosé, a nice Provencal rosé with an aioli, and you've explained why. So I'm, I'm starting to melt a little bit here. <laughs> <laughs> um, tell me, though, on the subject of chilli and, and wine tasting, mm. do you consciously avoid any foods before you taste wine? If I'm writing about wine, um, if I'm tasting for work, um, in fact, I try and taste hungry because I think that heightens all your taste. But when it comes to uh, food and wine, just eating, I'm quite brave and I like to experiment. So I'm always testing theories and testing things. And often I have five or six wines on the table and, and try different ones to see what works. Um, I'm not keen on burn your tongue off chili. Brad, uh, my partner, does. <laughs> I like to be able to taste my food. <laughs> um, but no, I don't, I don't, I don't think I avoid anything. It's just fun. But there are some, there's some interesting things. Like if, if something isn't working, for example, if I have someone around who we, we having steak for dinner and someone comes around who doesn't drink red wine, which I find increasingly common. I will suggest that they I'll cut them a little bit of lemon and suggest that they put a little bit of lemon on their steak. It enhances the savouriness of the steak and it makes the white wine go beautifully with the steak. And why is that? 
what you're doing is you're accentuating some of the acidity. You're bringing in acidity and then that segues with a white wine. This is one of the broad brushstroke rules of wine tasting. You can either match flavors or you contrast. You can't match the rich, meaty depths of rare sirloin, for example, in a white wine. But if you just do a little bit of lemon over the steak after it's cooked, you've added that acidity. So then you can match the citric acidity with the white wine that you're drinking, which white wine tends to have more citric-based acidity um, Mm. in terms of flavor. Yeah, um, I would definitely try that. I love white wine, actually. And uh, you see, I would have normally, if someone said to me, match a white wine with a steak, I think I would have gone for the match the weight kind of thing and gone for a really big, heavy Chardonnay. I'll try the squeeze of lemon in future. The other one... Um, the other way of doing it, for example, if you've got, say, a slightly more herbal white, is to serve the steak with a really lovely herby salsa or a herb sauce rather than... Actually, that's a good point because you can, if you're serving the steak with a creamy mushroom sauce, for example, on the side or a, a creamy potato dish or something on the side, then bringing in a rich oat uh, white would work. This is the other thing is I think we think about food and wine matching in a slightly one-dimensional way, whereas the sides and the sources are often actually more important than whatever the main yeah. thing is. And, and I mean, even putting aside, say, um, many Asian cuisines where you have masses of different dishes on the table at the same time, yeah. uh, we very rarely have just one thing on the plate, don't we? Exactly. And, and more and more. But in fact, that, that brings me to one of my bugbears about food <laughs> and wine pairing, which is that Gewurztraminer uh-huh. goes with, <laughs> with uh-huh. Asian food. And you know why that is? No. Why it came about. It's just because Gewurz means spiced in German. And so, I mean, I remember in old, old days of the London wine trade. And, and I remember even the person who came up with, yes, Gewurz goes with spicy food. Who was that? <laughs> I'm not telling. <laughs> and it's, it's so much nonsense on so many levels, because first of all, Asian food Spicy food, Asian food, is such a broad, rich spectrum of foods and flavors that from one end to the other, they bear no resemblance to each other whatsoever. Secondly, gewurz can be rich, oily, and sweet to really light and quite innocuous and, you know, maybe a little bit of rose petal, but not spicy at all. Nothing annoys me more than at the back of a bottle of Gewurztraminer, pair this with Asian food. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But there are some foods that make wine taste odd, aren't there? Yes. I'm thinking artichokes here. Artichokes is one of of them. Um, Again, I'm going to reference Victoria more because she's she's brilliant on this, but she calls them game changer ingredients. ingredients that quite literally and chili and garlic are two of them artichoke has a very particular chemical in it and what that chemical does is it it inhibits the sweet receptors in our mouth so the moment after swallowed or eaten artichokes everything tastes sweeter but in a slightly metallic way so 
What you want in that is something, a wine with a certain amount of bitterness, because bitterness, uh, sweetness counteracts bitterness rather nicely, actually. I mean, anyone who's ever had a, like a radicchio or a chicory salad knows that there's nothing better than a bit of really sticky balsamic vinegar drizzled or honey and salt to also counteract bitterness. So if you can have a wine with some skin contact bitterness. An orange wine, for instance. An orange wine. Italian white wines often have a great element of bitterness. And I would avoid red wines because I think that, again, with that slightly metallic thing that's but that's just that's not a that's not based on on any kind of science. But I would just avoid <laughs> red wines. But I I would go with something with bitterness, skin contact, or something Italian. Vidicchio comes to mind. Uh, nuttiness, um, that kind of nut skin, walnut skin bitterness. We're all trying to sort of eat a bit more healthily now, aren't we? What about salads, which tend to be dressed with quite acidic dressings what would you recommend with them the the kind of perceived wisdom is that if you've got something acidic you need a wine that's equally as acidic or perhaps even more the the challenge with salad dressings as well is that you've got some sweetness in there and different types of oils i agree that you want acidity which thankfully most wines <laughs> provide us with <laughs> um when it comes to salads, I mean, very rare nowadays that you go and, and the salad is just iceberg lettuce. Very often now, salads include nuts and fruits and, I don't know, roasted veg as well, some cheese. Pulses. Pulses, yes. I would focus on a wine with good high acidity, uh, wines from regions like Northern Italy, they've, they've got such great acidity there, um, great varieties of acidity. Germany is another great one. You know, Riesling is beautiful with salads, but also you've got coastal regions. So Alberino from Reyes Spacious. Up in northwest Spain. Yeah. yeah. But, but I think the other thing is to understand the weight of your salad dressing. Is it leaning more into one of the sweeter salad dressings? Uh, you know, is there lots of honey in it, for example? Or are we looking at a very plain salad dressing with more complexity in the ingredients? So I think the thing is to go, what's dominating here? Is it the dressing or the uh, components of the salad? Nowadays, in our more and more with more and more plant-based eating, more and more complex, you know, people who love food and wine tend to look for more complex foods or more interesting foods. And so we, we're moving away from just the simple French dressing where the dressing dominates a salad. Now it's more the ingredients and the dressing is just a, a piquant element of the salad. So for example, if you had a, a roast beetroot, goat's cheese and lentil salad, I wouldn't even focus on the dressing. I would look for a red wine that was relatively low in tannins, but could pick up some of the sweet and earthy notes of the beetroot and the lentils, possibly a, a Cru Beaujolais, for example. I often think there's a note of beetroot in some Pinot Noirs, not necessarily the best, but you know some of the less expensive Pinot Noirs. Which, if all you're having for supper is a, a lentil, beetroot and goat's cheese salad, you know, maybe all you want is a simple village Pinot Noir or a, a nice 
you know, robust New Zealand Pinot Noir with a little bit of sweetness mm. because that's fine because beetroot is quite sweet. Now, talking of sweetness, because uh, you say if you're eating something quite acid, probably head for a wine that's a little bit even more acid. Mm. Now, the one rule I think I've taken on board is that if you're serving something sweet, for heaven's sake, make sure the wine is even sweeter. Because even I have noticed that if, you know, a a meringue with, I don't know, a a muscadet would be pretty horrible. Um, And occasionally (laughs) when round a table that's rather jolly and people aren't really paying much attention, I see people drinking the red wine they've had with their main course with the Mm. pud. And I think, You've had too much. You're, you're not noticing what you're <laughs> consuming at all. Um, but that, that's when those really sweet wines come in, isn't it? When, with, with a sweet course. Yeah. And, and in fact, I'm not so bothered when we're talking about uh, chili and garlic and, and artichoke. I think that all of those things can be overcome with a good wine. But dry wine with sweet food is terrible. It, it kills the wine. There is, to me, that's the, the unbreakable rule. Um, and Isabel might disagree with me. He's a um, Turkish sommelier, isn't he? Who yes. was at the Fat Duck. Um, yeah. And he um, is very unconventional in his approach to all sorts of things. I, I mean, I've done a, a Tokai, sweet Tokai tasting uh, where the entire meal was savory. And he is one of the few people who believes you can have a sweet wine with a dish and then follow it for the dry wine and your brain and your palate will very quickly adapt. And he's proved that to me. That's true. And he will also happily pair a sweet wine with a very dry dish. And yet wines turn, as soon as you have a dry wine with something sweet, they you can't pick up any of the nuances. All you can feel and taste is the acidity and in the case of red wine, tannins. So to me, they become, no matter how beautiful and magnificent the wine is, it just comes down to acidity and tannin. Mm, no, I agree. That I would say is probably the most important. If there was going to be one rule, I'd say break all the other rules or have fun trying, but don't waste a good try wine if you're having dessert. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with that. And I've ages ago had the pleasure of of a lunch at Chateau Ikem with nothing but Ikem and taking it right through. <laughs> Four courses, you know, right from the starter, the main course, the cheese, the pudding. Yeah. Now, cheese, major, major topic for pairing. Mm. What's your view? Of course, there isn't. I know you're going to say there isn't just one cheese. <laughs> no, there isn't just one cheese. And so, for example, um, when it comes to goat's cheese, you mentioned earlier, Somse. I love rosé with goat's cheese and the most robustly fruity rosé, the better. One of the ways I try and describe it to people is, do you like your goat's cheese with, say, red currants or a red currant sauce on the side or something like that? And, you know, what would you serve this particular cheese with? And often then, if you can try and reflect that in the wine, when we're talking about wine and cheese, we, we can't say what wine goes with cheese because goat's cheese or soft cheese is so very different from say something like um well cheddar or stilton that those yeah. you know or brie or or, yeah. or some of the really stinky melting or chunky 
cheeses that are mass epoise. Epoise or Munster or something. Exactly. Yeah. For years. And I, I, do you know where it came from, the, the red wine and cheese thing? I don't, except I think it might be a lot of people I know who follow the French habit of serving cheese immediately after the main course have red wine with it because it's carrying on They're still with the red wine they had with yeah. the main course. Yeah. yeah. And I guess the more British way of serving cheese last and you had your cheese with the port. So then that kind of the, the port and cheese, which I agree because uh, sweet wine goes beautifully with cheese on the whole, right across the board almost. But... I do find personally that port and cheese at the end of a meal is a recipe for bad dreams and, and indigestion. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm, it's not the thing I'm the biggest fan of. I think that white wine, particularly it was a discovery that I made through a, a tasting during lockdown, so two years ago. Chardonnay and cheddar is the most beautiful combination, which mm. kind of blew my mind away. And a Chardonnay with a little bit of oak. It doesn't have to be big oaky Chardonnay. So that was a, a complete revelation. And it's something that um, we've stuck to. Port does go, and classically, obviously with blue cheese, um, but it's something that I would recommend you have on a winter's afternoon prior to eating anything else and just have a tiny morsel of cheese and a tiny little bit of port. To, to stave off the bad dreams, you mean? <laughs> yes, rather than having at the end of a long meal late at night. Tawny port is a beautiful, we always go with vintage port when it comes to cheese, but tawny port, particularly if you're looking at some of the more nutty cheeses, like Comte, um, and some of the most beautiful nutty English cheeses as well. Tawny port's often a great, it's slightly, maybe elegant is the wrong word, but... It's not as concentrated, is it? I remember yeah. Nick Faith, the late wine writer, making the point that vintage port was bottled so early that it has all the congeners in it. It's got everything yeah. in it. Yeah. And whereas tawny port, they all fall to the bottom of the, the oak yeah. cask in which yeah. they're matured. So you're you're getting a sort of slightly more refined, more digestible liquid in a way. Yes. And port, vintage port can clobber the cheese very easily, totally overwhelm it. Whereas tawny port and cheese form a more mutually expressive partnership. Apart from that, I I wouldn't drink dry red wine with cheese, although I have had some lovely red wine and cheese combinations, but they tend to be really fruity, soft, lots of generous fruit, kind of almost new world, falling over itself, gambling puppies kind of red fruit. <laughs> but I do like, for example, if we, you know, we're going back to Comte, Alpine cheeses and Alpine wines tend to be very good together. So we there we're going back to that regional thing. But if you can, often Alpine cheeses have got a slightly herbal element. We're talking, you know, free range on Alpine pastures and their milk has a very particular flavor profile. Often the cheeses have that slightly herbal, grassy um, wildflower fragrance through them. And then to pick some of the Alpine wines to go with that, even like a Azura wine that has been made under floor can be absolutely beautiful and complement each other in slightly different ways. Mm. 
You see, it's all fascinating this, but my concern is that if we're too strident about the niceties or what you call the geekiness of, of food and wine matching, we scare people. We we make potential wine drinkers think that choosing a bottle of wine is more complicated than it is. But you have an interesting theory about where the, the whole importance of, of talking about pairing comes from the United States and that need to, to when when wine was under um, critic was being criticized uh, yeah. by the anti-alcohol lobby. Yes. And how we can put wine on the table, which is something that the rest of Europe and old winemaking regions never needed to do. They didn't need to justify wine. And it is interesting because I grew up in a, in a culture in Zimbabwe where you drank very separately to um, how you ate. It was cane and Coke and beer and G&Ts. <laughs> well, like, like India, um, largely today. Very much so. So basically it didn't, it didn't matter what you drank and alcohol consumption was very much something that was totally separate from food consumption. So you might even have someone who made really good food, but what you drank with it was irrelevant. And then prohibition, which left long scars that my sister lives in Arkansas today, so you can still see the the impact, the long reach of prohibition. And to justify getting wine on the table to say that, you know, you want to have this wine with that rather than a beer or spirits, you know, part of the post-prohibition thing was lots of cocktails, wasn't it? But I think that judging by the interest that I see from people who are not even into wine. It's something that does interest them. And even if you're not a wine geek, there is something quite fun. It's a bit like the way that we're interested in food programs and putting flavors together, even if it's non-scientific, even if it's not going to work, is for people who love flavor, it's an endless fascination. And it is true that I think in general, people feel more confident talking about food than talking about wine. So if you put the two together, it, it gives them an in to talking about wine, perhaps. But it also, so where I, I live now, um, a lot of people are very much into cooking for others, but don't know much about wine. What they like about the food wine pairing is it guides their buying. They wine buying, which for them might feel a little overwhelming. They they know where to get their salt marsh lamb from, and you know they when the wild garlic is in season and where to go and pick that. But when they're faced with a wall of wine or a website where there's so many wines, they don't know which wine to pick. But if I can say to them, they say, "Oh, I'm doing this, this, and this for the meal." Um, what wine, if I say to them, right, we'll go for it there, there and there, it narrows down the buying choices and gives them more confidence. And then when they've got the wine on the table, they feel confident that they've got the right wine. There is no right wine. And there's probably any number of wines that would have been great with the wild garlic and lamb, but it's taken out some of the uncertainty and People who are are not wine nerds and wine geeks, there is an element of uncertainty and there's an element of fear of being judged for your wine choices. Mm. And a fear that people won't like the wine. But if you can say to your dinner guests, this wine goes with this food, then it becomes not about whether you like wine, but whether the, the pairing works. Yeah, no, it's a very that's a very good point. 
Yeah. Well, we could talk forever about this, Tam. We haven't even talked about texture much. We've we've talked mainly no. about flavour, haven't we? Maybe we have to reprise this and do a, a let's talk about texture session. <laughs> um, me, the pragmatist, I'd like to throw in one very easily bit of advice that not everybody knows about, which is that if you're about to taste or perish the thought, drink some wine, leave a nice long time between brushing your teeth and trying to taste wine. There is nothing more inimical to wine, even worse than chili, is a minty toothpaste. Mm. Wouldn't you agree? Yes. Uh, it's just yes. really, wine and toothpaste is the most disgusting mix, <laughs> yeah. I can assure you. <laughs> um, I'd agree with that. Yeah. So this has been great, Tam. I'm really, really grateful. And so grateful that you have revised the entry on food and wine pairing in the forthcoming fifth edition of the Oxford Companion to Wine, which won't be out, alas, until quite late in 2023. But you used a beautiful quote from the late wine merchant, gourmet and prolific author, André Simon, that I'd like to mm. end on. It's, he famously said, food without wine is a corpse. Wine without food is a ghost. United and well-matched, they are as body and soul living partners. Thank you, Tamlin, for sharing your great knowledge. Dentist, thank you. It was great to chat to you. This podcast was created, hosted and produced by Elaine Chacan brown and me, Jancis Robinson. It's engineered and edited by Misha Stanton. Production assistance by Susan Castrava. Executive producers were Elaine Chacan brown Sam Dagamanjin for Recurrent and me, for jancisrobinson.com.